Big thanks to Stephen Ferris. Another solid morning. And uh, my guest today wants to make you wear yourself. And in fear and in laughter, uh, Dan Illick is the purveyor of the finest evidence-based shareable shit-stirring through irrational fear, his satirical digital news outlet and radio show. Dan spends a lot of his time dancing on the very dangerous terrain between comedy and journalism. (laughs) He stirs up controversy and knows what it takes to go viral. Either he's fearless or scared shitless or not letting on. Uh, The Ronnie John's Half Hour, The Mansion, Can of Worms and Hungry Beast are just some of the shows he's worked on, but Dan is currently doing stuff for the feed on SBS. And he's spent a whole lot of time here in this studio, in this very studio right here, presenting things like Up For It and on a couple of occasions, this exact show. Welcome. Ah, Thank you. It's great to be here, Ash. Yeah, well, I feel like I'm in safe hands. If anything goes wrong, you can just take the reins. (laughs) That's right, that's right. I'll just do time calls. It's two past 12 on FBI Radio. Dan Illick with you. There we go. I've done it. All right. Well, we're done for the next 15 minutes. That's our maintenance. So you, you were here since the very, very beginning. Can you tell us about the very first days? Ah, uh, yeah, I can. I got. Um, I remember doing pre-broadcast for FBI in two thousand and three with um, my friend Julia Hobbs. We used to go down to the little presbytery in Darling uh, in Darlington and sit with um, Dan Conway and make sound ta- like uh, sample tapes. What the FBI would sound like, and we'd be, you know, <laughs> I was like maybe twenty two, twenty one, you know, trying to sound cool, introducing Downside and other hip hop acts on on this tape, and and then um, they'd play them as uh, for the test broadcast before we would launch in September, and uh, then I. Remember Remember, certainly remember day one um, and uh, and flicking the switch and Jess Keeley sitting in that very seat um, uh, broadcasting the show, actually in the studio next door, in the studio number one. Um, and um, yeah, and then I actually had the pleasure uh, and privilege of hosting the uh, first ever all-nighter with Julia Hobbs and wow. we, uh, we, we kicked it off in style. It was one of those things where oh, all of a sudden we were in charge of the radio station. No one else was around. The 300 people that were here before to see it kick off certainly went around. <laughs> no. It was just Julia okay. and I and, a, and a, we were playing Monopoly throughout the show. Um, <laughs> were you actually commentating on what was going on in the game? <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure ago. we did. I'm sure we gave a running commentary as to who was the banker uh, and who was earning a lot of more money. I I'm sure Julia would have won. She's very wily. Um, but, yeah, so that was, it was the first all-nighter, the, me, the first of many all-nighters I did here at FBI. I like to think I didn't waste my youth here. I like to think I doubled down and invested in my in my youth here. And um, I really uh, – FBI is a very special place to me because not only – did I get some great skills and learn how to you know do do radio? But also I I, I got to meet a lot of really great uh, friends and uh, I and a lot of great people who now are my peers not only in industry but but across Sydney. It's like a Sydney wide network. It's a Sydney wide alumni of FBI. It's really interesting though because every time I you know look at someone's track record and and think oh they'd be great on the show, then I realise that they actually were at FBI at some stage. Uh, a lot yeah. of people that I kind of I look up to their work now. Oh, that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, training wheels here. It's kind of it's kind of really cool to see the alumni grow up and and now in our thirties and forties and fifties and, and, and running and running the city in running all the cool cultural things 
to do with Sydney music, arts and culture in this city. And that uh, that's very, it gives me a warm feeling and it gives me, uh, I feel very privileged to have been here from day one. Speaking of growing up and being in control of the city, you've recently been presenting 702 ABC Radio. Oh yeah, like that's morning. a job. That's a job that's uh, far beyond my years. Like, <laughs> let's face it. Uh, let's face it. I, I should be at least five years older before I start doing that job. Uh, what's, what's the difference doing grown-up radio though? You can't swear. Uh, you can't play hip hop. I played. I played Earth Boy. I filled in for James Valentine once, and I played hip hop, but got a lot of texts of like, "What is this?" But then I got a lot of texts from um, seven hundred two listeners who love it. Particularly when I said when I mentioned the text, saying, "Oh, I've got a little text line. I've got a little uh, text here from someone who doesn't like that song, but uh, I think it's pretty good." What do you think? And heaps of people called up. <laughs> heaps of people called up. Were like, "Yeah, that song's awesome. I love that song. I love Earth Boy." And of course, a lot of seven hundred two listeners are ex Triple J listeners who who are. Who are, who are just who love the ABC, and it's not like it's, it's seven hundred two shouldn't be thought of the old people's station. It's kind of Sydney's station, Sydney's adult station, and um uh, and we kind of forget the songs from the nineties and eighties that are on Triple J uh, are really really potent songs with a lot of memories, and and they should be played on seven hundred two. Exactly. So we got a, our first track of the day is by Blind Melon. Can you tell us why? Oh, Blind Melon. That was the um, first CD I ever bought. Uh, and I think the second CD I ever bought was um, The Grid Swamp Thing. So I'm so glad that Blind Melon was the first one because whenever whenever anyone says, what was the first CD you ever bought? I can say Blind Melon. I can say the cool song, not the daggy song. <laughs> and this song is just a cracker tune. And FBI 94.5, my guest today is Dan Illick.
On FBI 94.5, that was a track from Blind Melon, <laughs> brought in by my guest today, Dan Illick, who luckily bought a cool song, a cool first song, a yeah, first th- album. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was just, um, I just had a fortune, actually. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. It could have been a daggy one. Could See, have been Shania it, Twain, Come On Over. That's though. my first CD, but my first <laughs> album. Yeah, that was yours, wasn't it? <laughs> that's okay. Uh, mm, damn, I feel like a woman. Let's go, girls. <laughs> um, my first album I actually bought was um, on cassette, and it was Spin Doctors. Uh, I don't know if you know the Spin Doctors. They do a song called Little Miss, Little Miss, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they were the, um, I guess they were the one-hit wonder of their day. So, you know, yeah. we're all prone to that, making mistakes. Man, I just remembered that you could buy things on cassette, and you'd go into Sanity, and they'd have, mm. like, the top things on cassette. Oh, yeah, but I went one step further. When I got into radio, I think around 2003, when I joined FBI, I also bought a mini disc. So I actually bought albums on mini disc mm-hmm. as well. I bought a follow Apollo four forties, getting high on your own supply on mini disc. And I bought um I only bought two. That was the first one. The second <laughs> one I bought was um was West Side Story. <laughs> I wonder how many people in the world have put mini mini discs into the side of a MacBook Pro. Oh. Because, I mean, that would yeah, yeah. lead to destruction. They're not that mini, but, yeah, it would, you would ruin your computer. <laughs> so you did start off at FBI, and you did up for it, which is the breakfast show, for a while. And then you moved on to something else, a bit of a, an Australian <laughs> classic. Yeah, I uh, it was really great. Like, uh, the, day that, uh, the day that Stuart Buchanan gave me a call and said, if I'd like to take over, up for it. <laughs> Um, was a thrilling day because um, Jess Kelly was off to London and uh, and Michaela Solomarch and I um, shared it uh, three days a week and two days a week. And I was so thrilled. I was so pumped up to be doing Breakfast at FBI. So cool to be able to talk to Sydney in the mornings, um, which is what I've been doing the last couple of weeks on, on 7.02. And, um, uh, and three months into that, I got a job. I got like a job in TV because I always wanted to work in TV. And I, and I reluctantly took a gig at... Australia's Funniest Home Videos. Please My do. head said it was right. My heart said it was wrong. It turned out to be wrong, but I did learn a lot of great things. Uh, like, uh, for instance, I learnt the ha-ha out 
um, which is the edit, how to edit funny videos. So um, whenever you watch funniest home videos, there'll be a kick in the balls and then you have to laugh to yourself, ha, ha, out. And that's where you cut to the next clip. And there'll be a, <laughs> a grandma falling over and you th- and you count, ha, ha, out. And then you move to the next clip. So it taught me, taught me comic timing for it's television. It's cold and methodical, but it works. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's just the way we've done things for years. Don't tell us what to do. Um, I always wanted. I always wanted to do the voices. But oh, they... you didn't do the voices. No, I was hoping that you would. I screwed up one day and taped over the the voice track of one of the voices, and the EP hit the roof. Uh, and I said, "Oh, it's okay. We'll just put it through. I'll, I'll just do the voices." No, no, no! It won't bloody match. And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> right, okay, all right, fine." Um, my job effectively was to order the clips from least funniest to most funniest, and. The uh, you knew you'd done a great job when the executive producer of the show laughed. Now, to set the scene, in Funny Home Videos was set in a cottage. All of Channel 9's offices are in little cottages all next to each other. And his, his office was down one end of the cottage and my screening room was down the other end of the cottage. And when I passed him all the clips in order, um, if you heard him laugh down the other end of the cottage, go like this. <laughs> Ball terror! You, kn- you, knew, <laughs> you knew you'd done a good job. So if you got ball terror... That was Ball terror. So job that, done. Pack up. What You're, does that even mean? I think it means um, very funny. Um, like he <laughs> laughed so hard, his testicles popped out of his scrotum. Mm. I believe that's what it means. Uh, that's, that's the inference I'm, I'm taking from that. Yeah, definitely can sense a little bit of a culture happening there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that show. yeah. Anyway, needless to say, I didn't enjoy my time there. And a month later, um, I quit. Yeah, and where did you move on to? Well, it was great. And a month after that, we got um, the Ronnie Johns Half Hour, which was a sketch comedy show that uh, based on, uh, it was called The Third Degree back then. We got a development deal with Channel 10 uh, to produce our university sketch comedy show from uh, from a sketch comedy show into a television show. So, you know, it was just one of those things where that stuff never happens anymore, like in television. All they want is big, broad TV shows um, like The Bachelor or something. They want, if they can't get a million people to watch it, there's no point in doing it. This is like the last risk Channel 10 ever made. And look, where Channel 10 is now, you know, struggling under debt. So maybe they shouldn't have taken a risk on the Ron John's Half Hour. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it was single, you'd single-handedly bought Channel 10. No, I don't think, I don't think the two... You'd like to believe it. I don't think the two seasons of dick jokes that we did uh, single-handedly brought them down. But yeah, no, it was just one of those things where, um, where, where it was like a dream run, you mm. know. We had done... We'd done the Melbourne Comedy Festival as a university troupe and Glenn Robbins came to our show and, and Working Dog came to our show and, and Glenn Robbins called a TV producer in, in Sydney and said, hey, we were thinking about working with these guys and the TV producer in Sydney was like, hey, I'm actually looking after those guys and then and then they all joined together and they pitched <laughs> us to the network and well, a, a week later we got a writing deal. And then which a, never happened. Which never happened, so we got time to sit in the room and think and write for a month and then a week after that we pitched the network and they gave us a pilot. And then a week after that, they gave us six episodes. Then a week after that, they gave us 13 episodes. And we did 13 episodes. They gave us a second season. And it, it was a really, uh, a really uh, incredible time, a baptism of fire um, for anyone who's Absolutely. never worked in television or comedy professionally. That's when I didn't know what I, I wasn't a comedian back then. I was just an idiot. Uh, <laughs> arguably, I still am an idiot. But I learned a lot of lessons back then about diligence and writing and, and how to make sure... Um, if you've got a blank slate, how to you fill it been properly. You would really young. Yeah, I was like 20, 24. 24, yeah. yeah but 20... at least you'd been, you'd been starting early. I mean, you started way back in, you know, when you were 10 doing these kind of <laughs> musical comedies. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, Tell us about your roots. Well, I, I started doing comedy and musicals um, when I was about 10 years old. I, I did a show called The Cumberland Gang Show, which was a scout and guide show at the Parramatta Riverside Theatres, and I did that for 10 years. Uh, I, was a, I, was a, I was a baby when I first started, and I, I remember going to see my first gang show saying 140 kids up on stage having the time of their lives doing show business, and I was like, I want to do that! 
And the next year I did. And one of the happiest days of my life was after the audition, getting a letter in the mail telling me that I had made it to the cast. Woo! Um, Is this it, how you came up with the song Freeway? Uh, well, I ended up being on the production team for the show many years later and like helping produce the show and, and run the kids around and teach them how to do comedy and stuff. And part of that job is to write new material for the show. And I was writing down the M2 from uni one day and that's how I wrote this song Freeway well, this is the daggiest song you'll ever hear um, but it was to put it in contrast it's probably one of the coolest songs Gang Show has ever done that's how daggy Gang Show is Danilic Freeway on FBI 94.5 Danilic Original oh so cool this is not the track but is it, is it not this is oh not, this is the wrong track that's not the track but that is fine we can do another track you can play it later <laughs> no I think we're going to put it on right now Tell me if this next one is... Yeah, so this was co-written by um, Peter Lim and I. Peter Lim was a friend of mine from high school. And uh, and I just came, I just came up with it, <laughs> riding my bike, and I thought it was the coolest song ever. Uh, but it, obviously it's not. I can imagine a young Dan Illich just happily riding his bike into the Never Never. This is it. There we are. On FBI 94.5. My government job had driven me off the rails So I went and found my own freeway Embarrassing now listening to it. You, this, you did this to yourself. I thought it was the coolest thing. Look, and look, when you're 14, you write a song, it's totally cool. Yeah, I think I think everyone has a song that they wrote when they were young. Yeah, yeah. You know, when they first picked up a guitar. Oh, this is the rap. The rap's cool. Oh, this is the rap. Uh, Fed up for the rap. Freeway in my car. The Navigator. Don't know where we are. I like Jack Kerouac. I'm on the road. Obey the sign, I like cover your load. I'm riding on my Kawasaki jet and I'm sliding because I'm slippery and wet. And I know that when I go to my show, we'll break down and drive like the Flintstones. Anyway, anyway, we don't need to. We don't know. We have. We might lose some subscribers. So if we could just fade that down, we need to. Yeah, actually, I mean, if 
if you'd like to, uh, you know, make it up to to the station for that song, please sign up as a supporter <laughs> of the station because we probably just lost about at least 80. <laughs> no, no, I don't think... We wouldn't have lost that many. We wouldn't have lost that many. You might have gained some people who love uh, songs about road-based transport. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you should send that into Unearthed. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. <laughs> I think it would go quite well. Mm. Look, you, you've, done, you've done many, many things early on in your, in your acting career and musical theatre career, but there was uh, a culmination of all of your musical efforts with Beaconsfield. Can we talk about Beaconsfield? Oh, yeah. I, did a, I wrote a, um, a play uh, in 2008. I wrote a, a play called Beaconsfield, a musical in A-flat minor, and it, uh, it was very, uh, it, needless to say, the, the name of the show really perplexed audiences, and I got into quite a bit of strife in the Australian media for that name. Uh, if you a, do recall, sorry, uh, Beaconsfield, Beaconsfield you know, for people who were very, very young right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Beaconsfield was a mine disaster in Tasmania and two blokes were trapped in a mine for about um, two and a half weeks and um, there was a bloke who died, Larry Knight, who was uh, one of their operators with them. He, he died in it uh, in, in that tragic accident so under a bunch of rubble. Yeah, the name... So Beaconsfield, a musical in A-flat minor. In A-flat minor. Might have uh, been... Might have been, been... Sure, sure. Some people might have said... Uh, being a little insensitive. And yes, yes, they're right. Um, but it was two years p- after the disaster, so maybe just not enough time to make that comedy funny. You were, you were mainly looking at the media side of it. You weren't really making funnies you, about flat miners. That's, that's right, yeah. So uh, the show was about how the media exploited a, a tragedy for their own purposes. And it was a time when um, I actually flew down to Beaconsfield and, and stayed in the pub in Beaconsfield and wrote the show. So I interviewed many of the locals and many of their stories ended up in the show and interviewed a few of the miners. And um, they were just telling me about how, how they were just so sick and tired of the same journalists asking them how they felt all the time. And uh, <laughs> and it was people, it were, they became celebrities for a little bit. They kind of liked it the first couple of days and then I was like, then it was rubbish. And um, there was one particular song that really upset people. It was called um, uh, The Cult. And cardiac, and it was oh, a yes. song about Richard Carlton passing away and having a heart attack. And it, ostensibly, it was a song where the media turned on Richard Carlton at the beginning and then sang his praises by the end. What that reference was to was um, a lot of journalists were really jealous of the big, famous 60 Minutes journalist coming to, coming down while they've been on the ground for a few days trying to hustle up stories. Anyone who's as famous as Richard Carlton can come in, and um, people of people of Tasmania know instantly who they are know and can trust them implicitly because they're Richard bloody Carlton um, so they were also the many of the journalists were so jealous and annoyed that they got the exclusive with the miners um, when they'd be hustling really hard for the stories story in their own right uh, and so it was a, it was a song about how they were first of all they were bitching about Richard Carlton then he died and then they were celebrating his life uh, and and so it was, it was just kind of about the two-faced hypocrisy of the whole thing so the the musical ended up getting five stars from the age oh yeah which is a measure of how offensive it wasn't yeah. I guess <laughs> that's right the age gave it five stars and um, uh, it was almost Barry nominated I like to say uh, <laughs> so it was um, it was one of those shows where uh, uh, we we ran it for the fringe and and for, for 30 people a night and we sold out and then we took it to Comp Melbourne comedy festival um, six months later and, and ran it to sold out crowds there and we just had some amazing shows there and I I kind of I almost slightly regret not uh, trying to give it a longer run um, elsewhere Mm -hmm. we did run it in Sydney a couple of times but it would have been nice to see that project um, scale to something larger much Mm -hmm. like similar to Keating you know the Keating the musical but um, I just I don't think I was equipped to be able to do that Could I ask 
How much time did you spend actually putting the musical together and how much time did you actually spend defending the musical? Oh, yeah. When we were putting the musical together and um, uh, when, you, when you are an artist and you do comedy, you are your own PR person, you are your own media person, you are your own sales person, you, are, you sell the tickets, you, you design the poster, you do everything yourself because there's no money to do anything else. So when we put on the Fringe show, we were rehearsing for the Fringe show the week before, our ticket sales was, wasn't very good uh, and I was trying to get press releases in front of The Age and The Herald Sun, trying to get anyone to buy it. No one wanted it. So uh, instead of trying to hit up the Melbourne press, I decided to see if I could get some press in Tasmania. Because that seemed to be the place where the, mo- the story is most potent, so I called up the Launceston Tribune and and um, sent them an email with the press release, and I got a, a uh, I got an email back, I got a phone call straight away saying from a journalist saying, "What the hell is going on? What the hell are you doing? You're a bad person." And she asked me a lot of questions, and then typed it up. And the great thing is that the Trib in, in Launceston was, is a Fairfax paper, so the head of the Age, the editor of the Age, saw the, the Trib's front page and went, "Oh." We're going to put that on our front page, and so uh, I, I the first time the first thing I knew about it was when um, Chris McDonald, my my comedy producer from the Ronnie Johns Half Hour, gave me a text and he said, uh, "I think uh, you're you're on the front page tomorrow of the Age." And I was like, "What for?" Because of the musical, because Tony Delroy did it on Nightlife on the ABC on ABC Local around Australia. So he was he did what the papers say that awesome segment. Um, very good at that impersonation. Oh, my, I love my Tony Delroy. Hmm, what the papers say? Now, Jenny from the Age. Uh, some theatre makers causing trouble with Beaconsfield the Musical. Mm. You do a lot of really good impersonations, though. One of them is Alan Jones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I think we should get after we should this get to. next song. So, um, uh, so as a result of being on the front page, every, and the, which is proof that newspapers are still, still today, despite all their digital media um, uh, being published, newspapers still are the agenda centre for the national conversation. So I got phone calls from every radio station under the sun. Uh, the first phone call was Matt and Joe from the Fox FM show, and they're like, oh, what have you done? Oh, this is crazy. <laughs> Good luck with it, because with the musical, make sure you go see it. The next phone call was Neil Mitchell, who's the Alan Jones of Melbourne. He was like, you are the world's worst person. Yeah, what do you do? Would you make fun of the Holocaust? And I said, well, you know, <laughs> Mel Brooks has already done that. He did a thing called um, uh, Springtime for Hitler. I don't know if you remember, uh, very popular part of the about a part of the producers. Oh, that doesn't count. This is the death you're talking about. So two, one death is worse than million. Anyway, so, uh, so when, it, when the outrage started, what did you realise? You know, the, oh, out, the I, outrage I, I machine. I was in a bubble. I was in like this um, outrage bubble for about two or three days, and everyone wanted a piece of me. And uh, and we hadn't even opened the show, and I just couldn't handle. Um, I just couldn't handle the pressure. It was very, it was very, it was really hard work because when that kind of aggression is, you don't, people don't have to face aggression like that um, throughout their day. And during that time, I faced aggression from every journalist and writer and, and radio shock jock presenter. Uh, to put it in context, a current affair didn't come to our press call, but they came an hour later looking for me to bounce me on their own. So bounces. <laughs> oh, the, because because they want to they want to up on you. They want to do say, like. How could you do this? They, yeah, they wanted they wanted that shot, but uh, uh, I was I too see. smart for them. You see, <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is, what they do is they get you going somewhere else, so it looks like you're running away from them. Then everyone goes, "Oh, they are angry. They're being very evasive. Yeah, they yeah. they've done the wrong thing. Yeah. All right. So there's, gonna... there's no winning. There's no winning in that situation. I don't know what you do in that situation. Um, yeah. I don't know what the best reaction is when someone bounces you. Indeed. Uh, so we've got a track to take right now, and I'll, we'll tell you about it when we get back. Oh. <laughs> 
is that screaming? Oh, that is just a terrific song. That is like uh, my theme song, according to my girlfriend. She thinks I am uh, the one angry dwarf, as per mentioned by Ben <laughs> Folds in You're this. normal height. In this. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm normal height for short people. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I am taller than Andrew Denton, the original angry dwarf, So, um, <laughs> which is really nice. Um, he's, uh, if you're listening, Andrew, love you, mate. Hey, so so you got a you got a special call from Andrew Denton one day when you were I think walking around in Melbourne I believe yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what what came of that phone call um well uh, that was uh, around the time I was working uh, in Melbourne uh, just warming up TV shows and doing comedy and trying to make films to make a buck and uh, doing television commercials and stuff like that and um, we we just finished uh, Massage of My Medium and Irrational Fear and um, and um, Beaconsville the Musical at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and so I decided to throw my hat in the ring and, and go for this thing called Project Next on the ABC, which is where they were finding brand new young things to kind of give jobs to, to make stuff. And I decided to do an application, despite me already doing TV on the Ronnie John's Half Hour. I kind of like felt bad because I'd already, I directed a TV show in Melbourne. I'd, I'd already done the Ronnie John's Half Hour. I worked at Funniest Home Videos. You should have felt bad. <laughs> I really, you know, it's just like, is that, is that job for me or is that for somebody else? You know, is uh... that, should I be entering that? Like I would, I really want to do that, but I don't know whether that's for somebody else. And I made that mistake um, the year before when ABC um, Radio did this thing called the ABC Comedy Hour and it was for aspiring comedians. And I was like, well, I'm already a comedian. I've already had done, done TV shows. I'm directing TV shows. I shouldn't be going for that. I should be doing something else. Um, but then all my friends ended up doing that radio show oh. who were all at the same level as me. I was so jealous. I was like, hang on, that was for me. I should have I should have entered that. That's, that's my thing. I'm still aspiring. Yeah. I'm serious. to aspire. Yeah, so the, the lesson there, kids, is if you... Don't think it's for you, but you really want to do it. Do it anyway. Yeah, read the job description and then ignore it. So I filled out this 20-page thing and went to this interview um, for Project Next with a whole bunch of ABC people. And Andrew Denton was there and he asked you questions. He was grilling you on what you want to do in media and blah, blah, blah. And it was really, really tough. And you had to do this fake interview with a fake Malcolm Turnbull. And it was really <laughs> it was really grilling. Then you had to go into a room and, and make a, a minute video about something topical from the newspaper. and then And then you had to do it all in-camera editing and it was really tricky and I walked out feeling deflated because I was like, ah, oh, stuff that up. Not going to get that. Anyway, around the time the project was starting on Channel 10 and I went for a job um, uh, working for the project and I tried to pitch myself as a reporter but they were looking at me like I was a, I was an idiot. They kind of like, they were looking at me like... <laughs> You, you want to be, you want to be a reporter? You've got ideas? No, 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 no. We don't need you to report for us. Uh, we've got plenty of other comedians that we represent to do our show. I've sent some bitterness. Oh too. yeah, I was so annoyed, but the money was insane, like great money. Mm. And um, so I let, I emailed the producers of the films and said, "Hey, I don't know whether I should uh, uh, take this job at the project or wait to hear back from Hungry Bee. Uh, wait to hear back from Project Next. Can you let me know if you know I might be in the I might be in the team for Hungry Hungry Beast uh, uh, for Project Next. Walking down the street um, on Johnson Street in Melbourne, and um, and the phone rings and uh, it's Andrew Denton. And I hop, really hop in a shop shop and uh, he's like, uh, uh, "Good day, Dan. Andrew Denton here." Yes. And I was like, "Oh, hey, hey." <laughs> Oh, hey, Andrew, nice, nice to hear you. Uh, just letting you know, I uh, want to give you a big congratulations. I hear the project have offered you a job. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, yes, yes, they have. They've offered me a job. So, well done. That, that opportunity doesn't come around very often. So, well done. <laughs> and I was like, ah, thanks, but don't take it. Uh, uh, we're going to offer you a job instead. And uh, even though we're not paying what they're paying, you should, you should, uh, it'll, be, it'll be three times less the money, but three times more the opportunity. And I was Amazing like, and I was like, well, I am going to do it. 
Uh, and uh, and that was thrilling. Hungry Beast was um, probably for me the most important job um, that I've ever had in terms of it was really hard work, um, and it was it set reset my reset the goalposts of the kind of work that I continue to want Absolutely. to do. And what is a shame in this country is that that kind of work for me to be able to do that kind of work no longer exists. There's no forum on a, on a on a television level that wants to invest in the kind of craft that that Hungry Beast took to make. Is it because no one can take a risk or because the kind of stuff you're doing is inherently internet-based now? Uh, no, it's because no one can take a risk. Um, it's expensive. Um, the only way to do it would be the only way to do it without any stakeholders upsetting the process would be to do it on a national broadcaster, uh, on a public broadcaster. But public broadcasters don't have any money. That's all. They, that's why they just want um, reiterations of specs and specs and and anything with comedians talking about the news because the news always happens and comedians are cheap. Um, <laughs> but you know, getting a bobsled for a four second joke about the Winter Olympics is really expensive. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it, and and like taking uh, taking three weeks to do one story is, is would be considered a waste of time. Um, so it, it's kind of it's kind of like um, or, or it wouldn't have an efficiency dividend uh, in that respect. So <laughs> what an it, awful word. It's it's really difficult to do that kind of stuff. I think I think it was just lucky that all the right circumstances happened all at once. And um, it, the people I met there and the alumni from Hungry Beast are some of my most treasured friends. Well, yeah, and I'm not I'm not trying to flatter you here, but Hungry Beast is one of the best things. Well. The the best thing as far as I'm concerned that ever happened on ABC ever. I mean... <laughs> that's very nice to say. Well, and, and the kind of stuff, the stuff that still stands alone on the internet now, you know, like your videos about mm, yeah, like Circo, we, for example, or what anything like that. Yeah, know, Hazelwood. there's some really, um, the Beast File stuff really particularly held residence and still are quite, um, still looked at today. And in fact, we went down to CJZ the other day and Lewis Hobber and... JZ. Kurt, CJZ, uh, which is um, uh, Cordell, oh, Cordell, Cordell Jigsaw's The Pruder, which is the new company that <laughs> owns Hungry Beast. I thought you like, met Jay-Z, but Jay-Z. you just no, been no, like, no, it's no. Jay-Z. Um, and we just re-recorded a whole bunch of intros and outros for YouTube just to kind of give people context because the YouTube stuff is still really popular. Yeah. So it was really cool. Like, really, uh, it, it, Andrew Denton used to talk about what a privilege it was to, to do the show, and, you, and we used to kind of make fun of that because we used to hear it so often, but... Five years after, you realise that this is this is never going to happen again, and th- that time really was a privilege to work on. So yeah, it's sad that it's over. No, oh, but you know, it's okay. That it's over too. So we just had a track before by Ben Folds called "One Angry Dwarf." Yeah, and now we're taking a track from Jonathan Boulay. This one. Oh yeah, uh, ones who fly, twos who die. Uh, I love this track. I, when I first heard this song, I was presenting on FBI, and oh, or I heard it on. Oh no, where it was was the Smack Awards, and I heard it at the Smack Awards, and I thought that song is incredible. Jonathan Boulay is incredible, and I looked up everything to do with Jonathan Boulay, and I found Jonathan, and I thought Jonathan Boulay was the hottest damn shit to come out of Sydney in ages, <laughs> and I was so proud of FBI, you know, supporting this great artist, and I and I wanted to make. Um, oh, and he was from the Hills District where I grew. Up and I wanted to make a, sound, a, a film clip to this song, and I emailed um, his people, but they, his people never got back to me. Um, anyway, I, I was in the United States um, f- for between season two and season three of Hungry Beast, and I, stayed, I lived there for six months um, doing comedy and doing other stuff and trying to find out ways to work on the Daily Show and things like that. And one of the things happened was my friend Jigger. I was living with him in New York City. He um, was getting married in England uh, and packing up his house to move to California. It's all very confusing, and he. <laughs> He was, um, and I was going to England to his wedding, and, and so he was going to be, he had to get out of his house 10 days before I left to go to the UK, and all of a sudden, I had 10 days without accommodation, so I thought, 
I'm living in New York. What do I do for 10 days without accommodation? I know what I'll do. I'll fly to Seattle and I'll hitchhike back across the country. So I made this video called Twitch Hike, which was uh, a stop motion kind of uh, filmic uh, snippet of my trip from Seattle to New York as a film clip for this song and I, I just I just love this track if you can imagine if you go to my Vimeo you can see that you can see the video clip it's um it's one of the best one of my favourite things I've ever made Dan Alex my guest today on Out of the Box and here's Jonathan Boulay Jonathan Boulay 
ones who fly, twos who die. You're on FBI 94.5. I'm Ash, and we're talking to Daniel. <laughs> I'm just, I just call, just, you know, just helping you out. If you weren't leaving the country, you'd be doing me out of a job, which doesn't No, <laughs> no, I'm not doing it out of I'm leaving the country to give you a job. Ah, wondrous. <laughs> Actually, yeah, just in case no one else listening knows what we're talking about, Daniel's buggering off. Oh, yes, I'm disappearing. He's disappearing into the never-never. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm off to uh, San Francisco, which will, which will be great. So um, uh, for the last um, 10 years, for the, in the last 10 years, every two years, I've gone to the United States to do something, either to work or to make a film or to kind of, um, you know, explore the country and do something. So it's kind of exciting to be going to uh, San Fran and I've got a, a, a little job in hand that I'm excited about. So I'm going over there to to do what I do here, which is um, kind of satirical comedy on the internet, but um, over in San Francisco for a digital startup version of Al Jazeera. So it's... Uh, it's, it's Congrats. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm nervous about Al Jazeera. I mean, if they if they don't laugh their heads off, they cut your hand off. So um, <laughs> it's going to be dicey, but they I think it'll be fine. They wouldn't appreciate that No, they that wouldn't like that joke. <laughs> no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't appreciate that talk, and that was a joke. Um, All right, I, we have I to just, take I've, that out of the podcast. When I, when I rattle these keys... That's the joke signal. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. All right, wondrous. So let's let's go back into your early early life. So your your parents are from where exactly? Uh, well, Mum's Australian and her dad is Italian and her mum is Lebanese Australian and Dad is Serbian and Dad came out on a boat um, in the in the fifties um, as a as a migrant and he came out and stayed as a kid in a place called Greta, which is a migrant camp with a whole bunch of Germans and Eastern Europeans. They all lived there. And he tells these great stories of living in a migrant camp as a kid and how cool it was as a kid having all these international friends. And and um, one of the things he remembers is um, the, the camp announcer reading out the comics from the newspaper. Um, so kids would sit around the, the speaker as the camp announcer would sit by the microphone and read out what was in the comic strips in English, then in German. Um, so that was, you know, it's really cool. And often we would go on these trips out to Greta and Dad would play, Dad would make these mixtapes of all of his favourite songs. They're all, they're all these songs from that time that painted his time in, in, in early Australia, like these 1950s tracks that um, that... I are very. They were very catchy, very catchy pop songs. These this is before rock and roll, and Dad and Mum are still very much before rock and roll kind of people. They think like the kind of music um, that they hear on Triple J or FBI is atrocious. They tried to listen to me on FBI, but just had to turn off because of the music. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, understand, we're not their target demo, so that they're not our target mm. demo, so that's okay. And so this is this track. Um, uh, that you've got handy, Senna Tenna. It was one of those tracks on a, on a, on a cassette tape plaque, uh, packed back to back with like um, uh, folk music like Rosemary Clooney, Dean Martin and uh, uh, and like Disney tracks from the 50s, like Mouseketeers songs. And then there was this little folk track, this little track called Senna Tenna that is just so catchy that I just seem to remember. So, you know, we should play a little bit of it at least. Send the, send the, send the. 
Uh, apparently it's an old, um, it's a, like a Hebrew folk song that was kind of uh, written around the time Israel came about. And it kind of got big in, in Israel, and it kind of got big in America. And yeah, it's a, a little, you yeah. know, a little Jewish folk song. It's very American marching band mixed <laughs> with a Jewish folk song. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. very much of that time. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, it. it's, it's one of the earliest mashups. You're right, Ash. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and the big, the big bands were really big around the time of the Second World War. And your parents actually met around that time, didn't they? Oh, uh, no. My parents were born around the Second, second World War. Um, my parents met. Uh, in the 60s. Um, my dad uh, was in the army. He was, oh. uh, he was uh, on exercise in Lithgow as a, as a young uh, officer in the army reserve. And um, he had a truck accident. He was in the back of a troop carrier and the troop carrier hit a rock or, or tipped over and, and all the troops in that troop carrier fell out and the next truck in the convoy ran all those troops over. So quite a few people died in that accident and, and many of dad's friends um, passed away and um, and and many and some of those people had life changing injuries, and they went on to live, but had very poor quality of life. And Dad's probably the only one out of that accident that is still living today, and he's he's quadriplegic um, as a result of it. And he had the partial quadriple, partial quadriplegia, and my mum. He got rushed off to Concord Hospital and was looked after by a woman by the name of Gwen, my mum. And uh, so mum and dad met in hospital. Mum was his nurse way back in the 60s and arguably today is still looking after him. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful story. Uh, oh, it's very nice. Yeah, it's a very yeah. nice story. And, um, and yeah, like it's, uh, it's cool. My parents, are, my parents are very different but um, very, very good people. Yeah. My, my dad's like a very generous man who, who uh, is determined to not be or not think disabled. And my mum is a very generous woman who is determined to give dad the quality of life that he has enjoyed up to this point. So it's, um, yeah, it's very nice. Um, my parents are quite incredible people. And they're um, good people to watch and learn off. Yeah, and who do you think you take after the most then? Uh, I'm as beautiful as my mum and as funny <laughs> as my dad. Aww. Oh, Dan Illich. My Dan dad, Illich, I should say. Well, yeah, that's how my dad would say it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and and speaking of which, I noticed that you were you were friends with Stella Young. Yeah. Passed away this week. Oh uh, yeah, I was pretty good friends with her. I was um, uh, it's it's I haven't really dealt with her leaving yet. Um, because it's like uh, when someone gets erased out of your life, it's almost like. It's kind of strange that vacant that vacancy. I kind of still think she's still alive, but it, I, I haven't just dealt. I just haven't dealt with with her passing yet. Um, Stella is incredible, incredible comedian, and, and my the biggest funniest thing uh, was great. Like I, I was great. She sent me a, a message, a really beautiful message on Facebook uh, after I went and saw her Melbourne Comedy Festival show. Um, she said, "Oh, mum's mum was so excited to be in the comedy festival show because she sent me a, um, uh, she she after the festival show she came up and said, "Did you know Dan Illick was in the audience?" And I was like, <laughs> "What?" She said, and, and mum's like, and I told mum, "Yeah, I'm friends with him. I gave him a free ticket." Um, so she was very <laughs> excited to give me a free ticket just to say to name check me with uh, with her mum. And one of the coolest things in that story was that she she told the story about shopping with her mum in Woolworths and her mum not knowing what fisting was and um, and, and she. Had and Stella explained to her mum what fisting was, um, and uh, uh, oh no, Stella didn't like the idea of ex- trying to explain to her mum what fisting was. But in that show, her mum was in the audience, so her mum quickly caught up about what fisting was. 
It was, a, it was a hysterical show. And oh she's one of the most important voices in our comedy community, not just because she's disabled and she stands up for um, people with disability, but because she is so sharp, so bright and so cervic and so such. She's just, just a great bullshit detector. And we're, it's just going to be sad to kind of miss her. Absolutely. Such a huge loss for Australia. Yeah. She's the Michael Clark of comedy. No, the Philip Hughes of comedy. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think there should be much more, much more of her. Yeah, I'll be, we'll be talking to on 702 tomorrow with Geraldine Hickey and, and Toby Halligan, who are two Melbourne comedians who knew her very well. So oh, That'll um, be fantastic. Yeah. So tune in tomorrow to 702 in the early morning. Yeah, 720. And then tune in back to FBI as immediately soon after. after. Immediately after. <laughs> so we'll take a track from your early on FBI times. Oh, yeah. Bit of spod love. You did an interview with Spod. Yeah, Spod uh, was my first interview. And it was 2003, and I was so nervous about doing my first interview on radio. What the listener may not know about FBI is FBI is filled up filled with people who love radio, who love music, who love Sydney music, arts and culture, and they might be doing radio for the very first time. And um, so if you're listening to FBI and you hear that and uh, you hear a bit of nervousness in someone's voice, yeah, they are nervous because they're, they're too scared about stuffing it up. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. You, If you met your favourite artist after a gig and just asked them to sign something, you're shitting your pants. But yeah. what if you're talking to them on live-to-air radio? Yeah, that happened to me once something. when I interviewed um, a DJ from La- uh, a music producer from London. I kind of I forget his name. I forget the, the album's name. And I really was into their music at the time. And uh, I was just I was just fawning over their, their EP. I was like, oh, I love that track because of this. And well, it was no questions. It was all me going, oh, I love this because of that. I love that because of that. You guys are great. <laughs> but Spod was my first. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know the music. Um, no opportunity. Needed to gush and Spod it. was brand new too, so he didn't know anything either. He was kind of like, um, uh, he's kind of like this great Spod was like this great over the top character who was like a soup who thought of himself. He's like the Andrew WK of Australia for a little while there. And um, so I, I rushed into Stuart Buchanan, who was the manager director at the time. I was like, Stuart, what do I ask Spod? He's like, maybe you can ask him what he thinks about um, you know going into uh, the world of uh, his contemporaries. Like, ask him who wh- who he likes, who who's his inspiration. <laughs> maybe you could ask him this maybe you could ask him that and I was like oh thanks so I took those questions in and I, I clicked, turned on the mic and I asked him I tried to be as professional as good and I asked spot all these questions and I got off and I, I high five myself I was, thought I did such a great job um, so uh, and this album became a very special um, album uh, for me because not though not many people outside of Sydney and FBI know it uh, if you're an FBI a long time FBI listener you will love Spod and this is a song called Summertime
94.5 Spud. Oh, so triumphant. Yeah, still still one of my favourite Sydney artists of all time, Spod. Just terrific. See, he, he always had backup dancers and everything he did was sold with immense confidence and that um, that just made me smile every time. That's Dan Illick, an amazing Sydney cider who does all of the things I could list for ages, <laughs> but we've actually come up to the hour and we've run out of time Thank to God. sing your praises. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be here for another couple of hours. <laughs> So, Dan, it's been great having you in Sydney. Oh. You're moving onwards and upwards to AJ Plus and yeah. really looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. Uh, yeah. Our last song. Oh, yeah, our last song. Okay, so this song, Someone Great by LCD Sound System, is, is probably my favourite song of all time. Uh, it made me cry once driving across Tasmania when it came onto my iPod, uh, driving through the poppy fields, and I heard it, and um, and uh, I had to pull over and I Googled what it meant. And, and as far as I can tell, it's a story about James Murphy and when his um, therapist died, his psychiatrist died, and he was really close with him. And um, it made me... I sat in the car amongst the poppy fields, sun setting, and I started to cry. And my other LCD sound system story is Lewis Hopper and I from Hungry Beast, who now does Drive on Triple J, um, he, uh, he and I were working early uh, on a Sunday um, when no one else was in the office in Hungry Beast. And we had to get the scripts ready for Monday so we could do the Monday pitch. And um, no one was around and we didn't get any work done because it was the final uh, of this LCD sound system um, uh, shows at the Madison Square Gardens that was being streamed live on Pitchfork. So I went round to every computer at Zapruder's Other Films and turned it on and streamed it live, full screen. <laughs> and Lewis Hobber and I sat there, hugged each other, danced and cried and ate food and drank beer and just mourned the loss of the great band LCD at South System. And dare I say, um, if I do pass without putting a will together, if someone could play this song at my funeral because I'm going to make everyone cry. Oh, beautiful. That's Dan Illick. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dan. And if you go to the programs and playlist page. There's a few songs we didn't get time for today because we had an internet outage, which was fun. <laughs> yeah, we tried to fit in all that we could, but there's going to be a couple of tracks there with a little explainer on why Dan wanted you to hear them on FBI 94.5. Fun to be with you. Out of the box. My name's Ash Berdebez, Dan Illick. Become a supporter. Yep. Call up on... Oh, 833-2299 because we love you and love us back.
Out of the Box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.